November, I get a craving for turkey, but turkey in Taiwan? Yes, in today's Taiwan Insider, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving Taiwanese style. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's check out the stories on our radar. Taiwan has launched construction of its first domestically built submarine. President Tsai Ing-wen spoke about the importance of strengthening indigenous defense capabilities at the launch ceremony on Tuesday. The project could see the first of eight Taiwan-built diesel-electric submarines enter service by 2025. A charter jet carrying a government delegation from the United States landed at Taipei Songshan International Airport on Sunday afternoon. Neither Taiwan's foreign ministry or defense ministry have given details about the visiting officials. According to a Reuters report, Rear Admiral Michael Studeman of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command is at the head of the delegation. Meanwhile, a planned visit by the head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has been canceled. Taiwan and the U.S. signed a five-year Memorandum of Understanding Friday to establish annual economic talks. The memorandum recognizes, among other things, the importance of cooperation in the semiconductor industry. A health official says that Taiwan will be able to purchase enough doses of COVID-19 vaccine to cover 10 to 50 percent of its population. Taiwan already has a deal with COVAX, a platform allocating COVID-19 vaccines worldwide that will allow it to vaccinate up to 10 percent of its population, or roughly 2.3 million people. The Taiwan Epidemiology Association has developed an AI-powered machine that can detect signs of dementia early on. The machine assesses patients' movements for signs of cognitive impairment. It is able to detect mild impairment with 90% accuracy, allowing doctors to diagnose dementia early and prevent the onset of irreversible damage. So this week in America, my family is going to be celebrating Thanksgiving separately and safely. Oh, that's good. Yeah, how about my family? My family too. Yeah? Virtual celebration over the phone, FaceTime. Yes, <laughs> great way to do it. You know, we don't really celebrate Thanksgiving here in Taiwan like we do in Canada and America, but we still have so much to be thankful for. That's right. And a famous director told the media this week what he was thankful for. Taiwanese-American director Ang Lee was in town for the Golden Horse Awards, Taiwan's Oscar. And he told everyone what he was thankful for. All the stars were out in force for the Golden Horse Awards this past Saturday in Taipei, and they went without masks, at least on the red carpet. With the pandemic largely at bay, Taiwan is one of the few places in the world that large scale events like this are possible. For two-time Oscar winner for Best Director, Ang Lee, who is also the chairman of the awards, this year was one of the most moving ceremonies in 30 years. I'll have a deep and lasting memory of this year's awards, he says. It was an extraordinary experience. He thanks all the staff for the Golden Horse Awards for putting on the event under such extraordinary circumstances. It's been a long time since I've been around so many people in person. I live in America, so I'm a bit of a foreigner. The whole atmosphere was wonderful, including the winners. I was very moved. One of the most memorable parts of the evening was veteran actress Chen Shufang walking away with both the Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress awards. It was the 81-year-old actress's first time walking the red carpet in her six-decade-long career. 
Park Chen starred opposite Best Actor winner Mo Ziyi in Dear Tenant, the story of a gay man who struggles to take care of his deceased partner's son. But the big winner of the night was My Missing Valentine, which picked up five awards, including Best Film, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. It's a romantic comedy, perhaps a nod to what audiences are looking for now more than ever. No Thanksgiving celebration is complete without turkey, so that's why we've invited Leslie Dale to join us. He loves food. <laughs> and actually, we do have turkey in the studio that we're going to sample. This is Taiwanese-style turkey rice, and I just want to show you what's in my bowl here. I have here uh, some shredded turkey with some um, scallions on top of it, and also a uh, crunchy pickle here to cut the flavor. I have a hard-boiled egg, uh, and then also some bamboo. So go ahead and dig in. This is making me hungry. Here we go. It this smells good. good. It smells really good. Mmm. I do smell the turkey. Mmm. This is great. You know what it is? That is, when you think of turkey, sometimes you think of like dry white <laughs> yes. meat, right? But like there, there's nothing dry about that. It's that is juicy, tasty, juicy, and flavorful. And the sauce is on the rice too. The turkey juice mm. is on the rice as well which is amazing so they've got the turkey fat that uh, is giving the rice a nice savory taste uh if somebody put this on your turkey table on your thanksgiving table would you be happy to have that or would you be sure. surprised there was no whole turkey i ain't complaining well, <laughs> no, i had complaining. chinese food growing up for thanksgiving so, really yeah <laughs> like what what did you have just great chinese food all kinds of mm. great chinese food mm. that's what we did well, Chinese in America. <laughs> well, I think it's wonderful. We always go for Chinese food. And I know people are very nostalgic at this time of the year. So if you're in America, you may want to try to make some turkey rice. That's right. And I know you got inspired to feed us this turkey rice. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> by food journalist Clarissa Wei, mm -hmm. who wrote about it for Epicurious. That's right. Uh, the November issue. Uh, now, I began by asking what inspired her to write about Taiwanese-style turkey rice. So Thanksgiving is coming up and everyone is always talking about roast turkey. Um, and when you think of the turkey, you think of a very North American bird, um, something that is whole roasted and also very seasonal. But here in Taiwan, like growing up, coming here every single year, it's actually a street food dish that is eaten year round. So I pitched this, you know, giving the other perspective of how across the world, in a land where turkeys aren't even optimized um, for the human conditions, people are eating turkey every single day, um, 365 days a year. So is this something that somebody might make at home in Taiwan, or have you only had it at like a restaurant or at a kind of a street food stall? So it's actually exclusively in restaurants because the average Taiwanese turkey is about 25 kilograms, whereas the average American turkey is 11 kilograms. So like you cannot <laughs> buy a Taiwanese turkey yourself. And that's the reason why they make turkeys versus chicken is because you can boil a whole thing and it could feed. I think it was like one turkey can feed over 400 people. Wow. Yeah, it's just wow, optimized wow. for the restaurant industry. You do not buy turkey at home. If you bought a turkey that big, there's no way you could fit in your oven. Exactly. There's absolutely no way. And they purposely buy the biggest breeds. Okay. Um, weirdly enough, those breeds 
come from America. The Nicholas turkey is the breed they buy over, but they don't do well in Taiwan because it's a North American bird and they just don't do well in the humidity. Uh, so, I mean, what happens to them? They they die? So or? I think they have a 30% success rate. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, traditionally, wow. but obviously now with technology, um, they get air conditioning, I suppose, but mm. they just, yeah, they don't do well. <laughs> Oh, that's very sad. But there's a whole industry surrounded, uh, surrounding it. Um, I interviewed the Taiwan Turkey Association, and I guess they work with the farmers. And now, you know, over the years, this industry started in the 1950s. Okay. And over the years, they've sort of optimized it. But again, like, turkey's not the best bird for the tropics. So I understand that they actually bring in the eggs mm -hmm. every year? Yeah, they order the eggs um, from a multinational poultry company, um, and then but the turkeys are bred and raised here. Okay. But the eggs are from um, abroad. Can you describe the perfect like turkey rice for me? Yeah. Um, for you, what does that taste like? Um, for me, it boils down to the texture of the turkey. So in Asian culture, um, when poultry is cooked, it's poached. And to Westerners, that's a bit weird because you would never boil, you know, a turkey or a chicken. You always roast it, right? Well, I think for most of us, we don't have a pot big enough to boil <laughs> exactly. or poach a turkey, right? Yeah. And then so when you poach it, it's like getting it to the perfect temperature and also cooling it down so it's not overcooked or undercooked, um, but that's so that the juices still flow out when you bite into it. And mm -hmm. um, when we were talking to some of these um, chefs in Taiwan, they've like figured out the process so that it's super juicy. So to me, the perfect bowl of turkey rice is a meat that is juicy and actually a sauce that is quite minimal. Like the sauce should not overpower the turkey. Okay, so we're not talking about a, like an American gravy here. No, it's super, I mean, most of it is um, turkey oil that they render out. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're making it at home when I was developing the recipe, like where are you gonna buy turkey oil? You can also use, <laughs> you can use goose oil or lard um, mm -hmm. as a substitute. So the sauce is really minimal. It's um, sugar maybe, a little bit of light soy sauce, um, some micho, some rice wine, um, but it's mostly lard. So it's turkey meat on turkey fat um, in the restaurants. But if you want to do it at home, um, turkey meat and lard on top. Is this something that you would like to see on your Thanksgiving table or would that make you a little bit sad because it's not a whole turkey? I think as an American, I miss the whole roast turkey with gravy, but I would love to see turkey rice being incorporated as like a day after Thanksgiving mm, tradition. Absolutely. Yeah, but I miss the gravy and the stuffing and the cranberry sauce. We'll be posting the full interview with Clarissa Way on Facebook and YouTube, and also the links to her special recipe in the show notes below. Now, imagine trying to throw together a whole Thanksgiving meal here in Taipei. You only have 90 minutes to do it. What do you do? 90 minutes? I would call <laughs> catering. Yes. <laughs> Might be too late. <laughs> that's true. How about you, Leslie? I hope you like buckets of fried chicken because that's what you're going to get. <laughs> that's actually not a bad way to do it. Now, uh, one year for Feast Meets West, my co-host Ellen Chu, she challenged me to throw together a meal in 90 minutes. Here is a look at the plate of food that I managed to put together. Have a look. Oh, wow. Oh. You didn't cook <laughs> no. that, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't cook you, anything on there. You bought it from different places, I right? I brought butter, and I also bought a uh, Roselle flour jam instead of cranberry sauce. Because cranberry is hard. Roselle flour jam. Yeah. So it's a Sounds pretty fancy good. red and tart. Sounds very good. And what else did you notice in that photo? Uh, pork chops, I would say. Was that, was that a pork chop? That was actually a That's turkey, chicken. That's right? oh. oh. Roast chicken, Thai style, so it brings uh, in the whole pumpkin? new immigrant flavor. That's right, pumpkin in there. I see pecans. 
Yes, pecans. Pe little tiny oh, pecan, pecan tarts. Uh, right. Corn soup. Corn soup. You got some uh, green beans? There is green beans. Mm -hmm. I bought the gambian sijido, so it's like the <laughs> fried stir-fried beans. Right, yeah. If you're gonna do green bean casserole meat. here, that's the thing to do, right? right? And then uh, there was also some rice because we couldn't find stuffing. Um, and then we had a like a crystal, uh, what do you call it? A uh, sparkling drink, mm. uh, ah. a yuzu, um, like kind of a grapefruit flavor or pomelo flavored sparkling drink. Ooh, it looks fancy. delicious. Yeah. It looks like a great meal. It actually was pretty good. I was proud of myself. I mapped it all out on Google Maps beforehand, planned my chart of, you know, my course of action. How long exactly did it take you? It took me just under 90 minutes. Like I, I raced into the radio station just in the nick of time. Wow. So you yeah. made it. I and that it. is a secret uh, recipe from <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> now, if you'd like to listen to the whole audio adventure, we'll have the link to the show in the show notes below. Let's talk Turkey, because even though Taiwan doesn't observe Turkey Day, I thought I'd dig around online to see if I couldn't find any hints of Thanksgiving in Taiwan's netsphere. Surprisingly, I found out that Taiwan does Turkey. In fact, it turkeys very well. Have a look at this picture. That's a screen grab of the Republic of China's Taiwan's Turkey Association website. Yeah. We have a turkey association. In fact, according to the National Animal Industry Foundation, Taiwan has 80 turkey farms, which produce a quarter of a million turkeys every year. 60 of those farms raise turkeys specifically for turkey rice vendors. Turkey rice is a dish that Jiayi in the South is famous for. Jiayi is so proud of turkey rice that in 2014, Jiayi City attempted and successfully created the largest bowl of turkey rice in the world. I'm not kidding. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. There was an adjudicator and everything. If you're curious, about turkey rice's nutritional info, have a look at this picture. The Facebook page, How Much Protein, gives detailed nutritional info for turkey rice. 12 to 16 grams of protein ain't bad at all. But perhaps the most turkey-rific story in Taiwan involves something this woman created, 22-year-old Chen Ruoxin from the southern city of Kaohsiung. She may be young, but she is one talented spray paint artist. In August, a turkey rice restaurant in Jiayi asked her to spray paint a mural on three rolling doors. She documented the entire process on social media and spent five days completing the mural. In response to Chen's mural, Tsai Jinglun says, how do you expect me to go to Jiayi and eat turkey rice when faced with such cute turkeys? To which Chen responded, eat it with your eyes closed. That's not bad advice. I'll leave links to Chen's social media and her original video in the show notes below. Give her a like, give her a follow, because that girl has some serious talent. I went into this episode of Hashtag Taiwan thinking I'd just type Hashtag Turkey into the search bar of social media websites. I thought I'd find mostly restaurants trying to sell me roast turkeys, and I did. But to think that I'd spend my time unraveling Taiwan's deep connection with turkeys is a rabbit hole I didn't think I'd fall into. Or maybe in this case I'd just say turkey hole. Today's brain game is a top 10 list. Mm. Andrew and Leslie like will guess the top 10 <laughs> things expats love about Taiwan. Oh. And this is from a survey done by Internations. They do this every year of over 10,000 expats from over 180 countries. Taiwan has come out first in the past three years for the country that expats love. Oh. And these are the top things that got the highest scores on the survey. So some of these things are broad, some of them are a little more narrow. So uh, <laughs> you guys have 90 seconds to guess as many as you can. And you guys are racing each other. Okay. Are you guys ready? Go. Yes, Andrew. Healthcare. Yes. <laughs> Leslie. Safety. That's right. Boba tea. It's not on there. Oh. <laughs> Convenience. 
Uh, it's not on there. Transportation. That's right. Mm. Um, delicious food. It's not on no, there, no. but food is good here. Jade Mountain. Jade Mountain's not on there. <laughs> Taroko Park. That's not on there. Indigenous cultures. It's not on there. They ask the same Beaches. questions to all people uh, around the world about um, these types of things about a country. Uh, oh. uh, uh, education for children. Uh, that's not on there. Or not on, on the list here. Oh no, that wouldn't be one. No coronavirus. <laughs> Endemic safety healthcare. Um, uh, what do you guys friendly local people. That's right. Oh. You're doing great because you're an expat, right? I am an expat. Um, well, thank what else do you, you like about being here? Tell us what you not? guys like you're about being here. Hmm? What do you guys like about being what here? Like Maybe it's on the list. I just. I, I like working with both of you. Okay, great oh, working he can life. Have this oh, that's I, I don't need this anymore. Wait, great I got, working life. I got a point for that? Great working, working life. life. Oh. Because you flattered us. Working life. It sounds so <laughs> like. Thank you, that one. Uh, <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Flattery will get you something nice about Natalie. <laughs> I like Natalie's top today, you know. <laughs> it's a nice color. Okay, Aww. time's up. So, um, we also have, thank you for the compliment, <laughs> high quality of life. Okay. Okay, good personal finances, feeling at home. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you're you know how I stopped it and I was like, that couldn't be it? Like, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Didn't think about that at all. Um, cost of living. Okay. Oh, that's that's and I like this one, personal happiness. Personal happiness. Isn't I'm personally nice? very happy. Are you personally happy? <laughs> I mean, that's a relative question, right? I was happier now than I was like half an hour ago. Because oh, you had some you know, turkey rice, right? I did have some turkey rice. <laughs> but thank you to you for, yes. you know, making me happy. I guess, yes, I, I am personally happy. Here. I'm responsible for making Leslie into a happy expat. Happy, happy boy. <laughs> so even though food wasn't on the list, I think food is a really special part of Taiwan. And uh, we just had turkey, but there's something exciting happening with Taiwan's beef. So let's take a look at that. Taiwan produces 200,000 metric tons of sweet potatoes annually, but 20% never make it to market because they're not up to standard. Throwing out the imperfect product is just plain wasteful. That's why Taiwan's Council of Agriculture has stepped in to do something about trashing the tubers. By mixing probiotics into the sweet potatoes and incorporating them into cattle feed, Taiwan has produced beef with marbling and taste that rivals USDA choice beef from America. Some beef is even good enough to be classified as USDA prime. The Council of Agriculture's deputy minister says that beef quality has everything to do with how cattle are raised. He says that Taiwan's specialty beef is competitive in terms of taste because of the sweet potato diet. Not only is the beef produced of premium quality, but it also offers a distinct taste that can only be found in Taiwan. The head of the Taiwan Beef Industry Progress Association says that this beef can compete with the coveted Wagyu beef from Japan. If that wasn't enough, he even says Taiwan can offer its version of high-end beef at a more competitive price. We hope you enjoyed this Thanksgiving special. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, if you like our program, subscribe and leave a comment below. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Leo. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Happy Thanksgiving. Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. As the U.S. gets ready for the Joe Biden administration, people in Taiwan are wondering how Biden will deal with China and Taiwan. I recently spoke with a Washington insider, Derek Mitchell, who is the president of the National Democratic Institute. In the Obama administration, Derek served in the U.S. Department of Defense as the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for Asian and Pacific security affairs. Though he is not on the Biden team, he knows many of the people leading its Asia policy and gives us his thoughts on how the U.S. will deal with the threat of China, the U.S.-China tech war, and Taiwan going forward. Mitchell tells me first how he thinks the Biden administration will deal with the U.S.-China tech war. I think that's a very important component of this challenge. And there are people I know going into this administration, I expect to go into the administration, who recognize that the information war, which is part of the tech war, uh, that the integrity of information, the importance of an open um, uh, space for for free expression, um, to be uh, not to be subject to overweening surveillance, the kind of Orwellian state that that China is developing internally um, in its society is is being exported, and it's very important for all of us that that not be the norm for the international society and also for for uh, for nations individually. Uh, I think also the the value chain, the fact that. Uh, microchips and things, and technologies of the future, 5G, Huawei, or the chips that Taiwan produces. All of this is very, very critical for future security of the world, uh, for the ability to, to uh, shape a open, open, transparent, democratic, uh, liberal, free world. So there will be absolutely a lot more attention to this. And I think it'll be uh, not just government to government, but it'll include companies, it'll include civil society, uh, NGOs, and this is a, an area where Taiwan has been brilliant and has enormous amount to offer. Uh, the civic tech community and what um, Audrey Tong and the GovZero people, uh, and the volunteers, citizens of, of Taiwan, frankly, you have been a model for the United States as we deal with our own problems of our elections and our democracy. What we see your citizens have done and how you think about this is, is inspiring, to be honest. Uh, so I should be thinking, we should be thanking Taiwan, and I think we should be also partnering more and thinking about what we can do to leverage everything that you have to offer to ensure that this important, uh, this important moment is shaped towards democracy and not towards the Chinese model of autocracy. So I know that you actually did a documentary, Canary in the Digital Goldmine, about Taiwan's um, fight against disinformation after our elections. Can you tell us why you wanted to do that documentary and, and you know, in Taiwan? Well, I was thrilled that we did that. We, we were watching from afar of what the civic tech community, uh, the volunteer community and Audrey and the rest were doing uh, in Taiwan. And we wanted to share that with the world. I want to capture it and make sure, and video is the way you want to do things nowadays, because people can, can watch video more easily than, than anything else now online and on their phones. Um, so it, we just knew it was a great story. And, and we, didn't, we didn't simply want to do it in writing. Um, and it's a quick sort of nine to 10 minute. I encourage all your viewers to go on the ndi.org website or go online. I'm sure it's on YouTube, Canary in a Coal Mine, uh, about Taiwan's civic tech community. Um, it's just, I think it's a great story and um, people can learn from it. We wanted to show it at some international gatherings uh, of the tech community. We still do. We still push it out. 
Um, but um, look, Taiwan has a lot to offer. Taiwan is isolated in some ways because uh, it can't get into some or- international organizations that are afraid of China. But there's still ways that we can help shine a light on Taiwan and to demonstrate what Taiwan has to offer. And in that way, I hope it also protects Taiwan and it, and it creates more attention in the world to this, this gem that, that is in, a, in East Asia. You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I'm Natalie So. I'm speaking with Derek Mitchell, a Washington insider who is a former top Pentagon official on Asia policy in the Barack Obama administration. He is currently the president of the National Democratic Institute. Next, he'll tell me what he thinks of the U.S. elections and how Biden will deal with Taiwan going forward. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Today with Natalie So. I'm speaking with Derek Mitchell, who is a Washington insider. He knows many people on the Biden team developing its Asia policy, as he was a former top Pentagon official on Asia policy in the Barack Obama administration. He is currently the president of the National Democratic Institute, which has a thousand employees throughout the world helping countries strengthen their democracy. Now, with the chaos in U.S. politics right now, I asked Mitchell what he thought about the U.S. elections. Well, I speak in my personal capacity. As NDI, we don't work on American democracy. We focus purely on international democracy overseas. There are plenty of other organizations in the United States that focus on the challenges in the United States. And look, what we say everywhere, uh, NDI, we say, is that democracy is hard. (laughs) Democracy is always a work in progress. Those watching from Taiwan who are frustrated in, in Taiwan over whatever, um, remember that democracy is never done and it isn't easy and it's, an, a, you know, it's a constant fight. And we've never said as NDI that the United States has it perfect. Uh, we have, we've had racial problems, we've had divisions in our society, and we're seeing a lot of the dynamics in the United States that we see around the world, rural urban divides and disparities of wealth and divisions and problems of information that different people get their information from different sources and it may not be factual. There's the impact of disinformation, both from within and from outside the country. And we saw all of that in our election and it's put a lot of stress on the country um, as well as the way, you know, that uh, you know, things have been handled post-election. There's a lot of questions. It's been a challenge to our, to our uh, system and our institutions, but I think everybody needs to watch this and recognize that our system is holding on a bipartisan basis, Democrats and Republicans at local levels or election officials or state officials or vote counters or whatever it is. And and certainly the American people came out in record numbers to vote and their votes are being counted. Uh, Some things are being challenged in courts, fine. They're being dismissed because there's not evidence. 
um, and the system is holding. And democracy is the best system to make, um, to either sustain what you've got if you like it, or to make peaceful change if you don't like where your country is going. The alternative is, uh, is unacceptable. Uh, so as difficult and messy as democracy can be, it, it still is the best form of government. And the challenge for all of us is simply to strengthen it, not to bemoan its, its problems. And you will be opening an office in Taiwan this year. Can you tell us what you're going to be doing here? Yeah, we're very excited about this. And this is something that the, the government was supportive of and encouraging of. Um, look, you know, Asia is far away from Washington. We are based in Washington. We have 55 or so, 50 plus offices around the world, NDI. We have a thousand people working in places everywhere, uh, typically in countries that are in transition to democracy and not ones that are strongly sort of um, anchored in democracy as Taiwan. But because of the distance and because we are looking to do a lot uh, on in terms of democratic unity, we talk about in Asia and to leverage what I talked about earlier in terms of uh, Taiwan's own uh, assets uh, for, to, to share with others, uh, we thought it was worthwhile having an office in Taiwan and putting a couple folks there to help us uh, keep a pulse on what's happening in Taiwan, to have a sense of what's happening elsewhere in Asia for our democratic unity work, to work with civic tech uh, community, uh, and, and simply be eyes and ears and a presence. And also, I should say, to work with the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, uh, which is the only foundation of its kind in Asia focused specifically on democracy support. It exists in Taiwan, nowhere else, not Japan, not Indonesia, nowhere else, not Korea, but in Taiwan. And they've been partners for uh, NDI and for the National Endowment for Democracy. I think there's much more we can be doing in partnership. So we're very, very grateful to the people of Taiwan for their support of our, uh, our opening an office, which we hope to have early in the new year, established very early in the new year. We're still just working some administrative details. And then, um, you know, working for the betterment of regional peace and security and uh, values of democracy in Asia and beyond. So, um, Beric, it is good to talk to you because, you know, after the U.S. election, people in Taiwan are a bit nervous about, you know, the incoming uh, president. They don't know if U.S. Taiwan ties are going to change or not. Um, what is your take? Do you think that they'll continue to go strong or they, they may change in some way? I've watched some of the, the commentary from Taiwan and <laughs> the nervousness. And right. I have to say, you, you notice that. But I, look, Democrats, I find they, they sometimes get a bad rap about <laughs> not being strong enough on certain things. And, you know, so in Taiwan or in Japan, there can be, a, or elsewhere in Asia, there's a little nervousness. Yeah, I don't think we mean it personally. I think that um, just yeah. there have been some. Uh, High-profile Republicans have been very staunch supporters of Taiwan, so people notice that. Nothing against right. the Democrats, I think. <laughs> no, I know, I know, and I don't take it personally, but I do notice it's about that. But no, I think, I, look, I, I feel very strongly that there is uh, going to be um, a strong commitment, an equal commitment, an enhanced commitment to Asia specifically. Uh, there's a recognition. I mean, the people can can fault the Obama administration on how it implemented the so-called pivot, but it demonstrated that folks recognize the critical importance of Asia uh, and, and traditionally where the United States is focused on Europe or the Middle East or Russia or something, there is a recognition that Asia is a center 
uh, for, to get the world right in the center of activity now. And I think the Biden administration will have a similar approach. You know, look, everyone is focused domestically. We were going to have to be focused domestically because of COVID for a time and economic challenges. That's simply the way it's going it may be. But um, I'm very confident that a Biden administration is going to be very strongly focused and strong generally in Asia and be, as I said, clear-eyed about the challenge from China, as well as the, the desire, and I think it's good for Taiwan, there not be blind hostility between the United States and China. Um, that doesn't help Taiwan. Uh, right. We shouldn't be That's true. Makes us Because nervous. that can also incite China to do things because they have to pound their chest and create tensions for Taiwan. So I think what we need to do is be in very close touch with the government in, in Taipei, the understanding of the position, the sensitive position of Taiwan, um, and not do anything to make it harder on you, simply because we want to pound our chest and demonstrate we're tough on China. Uh, I think we can be, we can walk and chew gum, be tough on the China challenge, be stalwart in our values and our commitments, but also recognize that our partners have interests as well, and we should be sensitive to those. And I really feel strongly that uh, the people that will be in the Biden administration will be sensitive to that, to all of that. Well, that's great to know. And we really look forward to seeing what the Biden administration will do for U.S. Taiwan ties. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much. That is Derek Mitchell, the president of the National Democratic Institute in the Obama administration. He was the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense on Asia and Pacific security affairs. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... 3,000 years before the present. Not far from RTI Studios, within walking distance of where I'm recording this, are the remnants of an ancient habitation, a prehistoric site where people lived thousands of years ago. The site covers many cultural layers, built up on top of one another over millennia, as styles of pottery and other everyday objects came and went. One of the many layers in this record stands out, though. It's unlike anything that came before it in Taiwan, and unlike anything found in other regions of the island either. Perhaps because this layer stands out so much, it shares a name with the site as a whole. 
This is the layer belonging to the Yuan Shan culture, which was spread across much of northern Taiwan around 3,000 to 2,500 years ago. But the Yuan Shan site is far older than that. Settlement at the site goes back 5,000 years or more, and the Yuan Shan culture wasn't the first or even the second culture group to leave traces there. What about the Yuan Shan culture is so special then? What about it represents such a break with the past? To find out, I've spoken with researcher Li Kunxiu of the National Museum of Prehistory. Mr. Li says that once the Yuan Shan culture arrived, things changed in noticeable ways. Pottery that had mostly stood out because of geometric cord markings now sometimes began to show up with traces of color and decorative motifs. With the Yuan Shan culture, pottery also starts to have new shapes and features it hadn't had before, like handles. New kinds of stone tools emerge too. For instance, two hallmarks of the Yuan Shan culture that hadn't been seen before are stone axe heads and stone adzes, carefully notched to fit securely into wooden handles. It's likely that none of this will sound terribly radical to modern listeners, of course. But for scholars who rely on clues from pots and tools to understand prehistory, these innovations here in Taiwan's late Neolithic period are something striking and new. These new ways of making things are also important because they explain where the people of the Yuan Shan culture came from, giving evidence of a prehistoric migration. In Taiwan's archaeology, this way of making things is unique, but it can be found in other places, specifically in continental Asia. The likely origin of the Yuan Shan culture people is somewhere along the coast of southeast China, or perhaps in Vietnam. There must have been boats involved, and so it makes sense that these people seem to have preferred to stay near water, whether along the coast or along rivers. Although a good ways inland today, the Yuan Shan site was at the time a perfect match for a water-loving people. At some time several thousand years ago, what's now the Taipei Basin was a great lake filled with water, and the already quite old Yuan Shan site sat on a piece of high ground in the middle of it, perhaps an island. There would have been plenty of aquatic life to sustain these people. In the layer occupied by the Yuan Shan culture, the Yuan Shan site is characterized by heaping mounds of discarded shells. Mr. Li adds, however, that these people weren't entirely confined to the water. There is also an abundance of pig and deer bones around in the Yuan Shan culture layer, showing that the forests nearby had a wealth of game, and that the people who lived here were skilled at hunting. This kind of lifestyle and these kind of artifacts can be found at other sites too, of course. But Mr. Li says that further away from the Taipei Basin and the Yuan Shan site within it, 
some of the classic signals of the Yuan Shan culture might not appear. To the east, for instance, in what's today Yilan County, there's a different site at a place called Wan Shan that shows a connection with the Yuan Shan culture through its pottery. However, this site lacks the crucial axe and adze heads made of notched stone. In Mr. Li's explanation, it seems the Yuan Shan site isn't the only site showing traits of the Yuan Shan culture, but it does manage to tick off the important boxes. Eventually, new cultures came and replaced the Yuan Shan culture. And eventually, the Yuan Shan site as a whole came to be underground. I asked Mr. Li how both the culture and the site bearing its name were rediscovered. In 1897, Japan had only recently taken control of Taiwan and begun to rule it as an overseas colony. But already, Japanese scholars had begun to study the island. One of the things they were interested in was the island's prehistory. That year, when the Yuan Shan site was accidentally uncovered, they began to examine it. With the site sitting as it did in the middle of Taiwan's capital, this early milestone in Taiwanese archaeology was never an especially big achievement. It was right there. But easy access to the site made it a subject of interest to many. And Mr. Li lists off the well-known scholars of the day who came one by one to take a look at it. In Mr. Li's view, the important digs at the site would have to wait several decades, until after 1945, when Japanese rule on Taiwan ended. He says it was post-colonial scholars who did many of the important excavations at the site. Just like during the colonial period, ease of access has meant that a number of Taiwan's notable post-war archaeologists have visited the site as well. Through their excavations, we have learned much about both the Yuan Shan culture and the bigger picture that surrounds it at the Yuan Shan site, both the cultures that came before and went after. Still, Mr. Li cautions that there haven't been terribly many excavations. And he would not say that our understanding of the Yuan Shan culture is very complete. In large part, he says, this is because the Yuan Shan site has suffered bad damage and today is largely built over. Though it was listed as a Grade 1 historical site in 1988 and as a National Historical Site in 2006, the protected area is only a small part of the original site reported during the Japanese period. Much of it has simply been covered in the past decades during a rush of development in Taipei. Frankly, he says, the state of the site's preservation is poor. However, since people began to really value cultural heritage and history, at least a part of the site has finally come to be protected. Talking with Mr. Lee, the aim now seems to be to keep what's left of the site intact. He says that as far as he is aware, the last time work was done on the site was in 2010, in the run-up to the Taipei Flora Expo that centered on the surrounding area. Since much of the work that can be done on the site has already been done, any further digs would probably require extensive vetting to show that they are truly necessary, he says. 
While much of the site, and its most famous layer, may be lost to us, beneath a small grassy field, they're still there, the remains of an ancient Taiwanese settlement. Inside the protective barrier put up to prevent public trampling, there are glass windows that you can look through and imagine what it was like. Pottery craftsmen at work, unusual new stone tools being made, and digging for shellfish in surrounding waters that all too quickly have come to be covered in asphalt and concrete. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. So this week in America, my family is going to be celebrating Thanksgiving separately and safely. Oh, that's good. Yeah, how about my your family? My family too. Yeah? Virtual celebration over the phone, FaceTime. Yes, <laughs> great way to do it. You know, we don't really celebrate Thanksgiving here in Taiwan like we do in Canada and America, but we still have so much to be thankful for. That's right. And a famous director told the media this week what he was thankful for. Taiwanese-American director Ang Lee was in town for the Golden Horse Awards, Taiwan's Oscars, and he told everyone what he was thankful for. All the stars were out in force for the Golden Horse Awards this past Saturday in Taipei, and they went without masks, at least on the red carpet. With the pandemic largely at bay, Taiwan is one of the few places in the world that large-scale events like this are possible. For two-time Oscar winner for Best Director Ang Lee, who is also the chairman of the awards, this year was one of the most moving ceremonies in 30 years. I'll have a deep and lasting memory of this year's awards, he says. It was an extraordinary experience. He thanks all the staff for the Golden Horse Awards for putting on the event under such extraordinary circumstances. It's been a long time since I've been around so many people in person. I live in America, so I'm a bit of a foreigner. The whole atmosphere was wonderful, including the winners. I was very moved. One of the most memorable parts of the evening was veteran actress Chen Shufang walking away with both the Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress awards. It was the 81-year-old actress's first time walking the red carpet in her six-decade-long career. Chen starred opposite Best Actor winner Mo Ziyi in Dear Tenant, the story of a gay man who struggles to take care of his deceased partner's son. But the big winner of the night was My Missing Valentine, which picked up five awards, including Best Film, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. It's a romantic comedy, perhaps a nod to what audiences are looking for now more than ever. Visit RTI at english.rti.org.tw.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.